Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com. You can follow us on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email at feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And welcome to today's show, uh, Summer Roundup 2018, and also Sex Spots Part 2. Karen, how are you this summer? I'm all right. Hot. You know. It's like 100 degrees today, almost. Yeah. Today is, uh, I think, the hottest day of the year. It has to be. It's July 1st we're recording on. That'll also be relevant for what we're talking about. Before we get started, we want to give a little bit of an update about where we're at as a podcast for you guys, our listeners. Thank you so much for listening. And we also want to thank our Patreon supporters. And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash feministcoffeehour to support us. Uh, we got a new patron this month so thank you for joining yes thank you to everyone who supports us on patreon we hired an editor to help us edit our show and when we make a little bit more money we want to hire a graphic designer to help us with our logo and website so we appreciate your support that's what the money is going to right now paying the editor and some hosting costs a milestone for our show is that we're almost at a year of doing one episode per month, putting out podcasts at a regular pace, and we're very proud of that. We're going to continue at that clip, and it is possible that sometime in late 2018 or early 2019, we're going to switch to twice a month. We're not there yet. If you want to see that happen, definitely support us at patreon.com. We only have two levels of membership one dollar an episode or five dollars an episode because we don't need that much money to make the show so if you'd like to support us please do yeah neither of us pay ourselves for this show so we really just put all the money into the cost of making it so we don't need you know a 10 or 15 or 20 dollar a month kind of sustaining member but more members means more show so in the united states and in some places across the world Yesterday were the Families Belong Together marches Mm -hmm. to protest the Trump administration's policy of separating children from their parents when they enter the country seeking asylum. Mm -hmm. A judge has ruled that the children must be reunited with their parents, but the protests continued because I think a lot of people, myself included, considered it unlikely that this will happen unless the pressure stays on. You attended these rallies, right? Yes, I went to one of the rallies that was on Long Island. I have a young son. My son is not two years old yet. We were thinking of going to one of the marches. There were two marches in New York City. There was one across the Brooklyn Bridge, and there was one in Queens from Jackson Heights to Corona. And it was very hot yesterday. It got up to 97 or 98 in some parts of New York City. So we were worried about him getting overheated, getting sunburned. Mm -hmm. So we went to one of the rallies in Long Island where it was just go to one place and hold up your sign and stay there. And it was great. The rally that we went to, and I'm just going to say it because I think my husband's posting it on his blog anyway, was at the Rockville Center train station in Long Island. There were, I would say, at least 400 people there, if not more. It was great. There were local organizers there, people who worked with immigrants, people who worked with refugees, uh, labor organizers. There was press there. Newsday was there. News 12 was there. It's a positive thing to do with that anger, you know, is to, to make a sign and to go. Going to the Families Belong Together rally with your family was great. And there were a lot of uh, parents there that had young children. So um, the turnout was amazing. And I was watching it online the rest of the day. There were these rallies all over the country and the world. I I looked this up. There were, I think, 408 women's marches Mm -hmm. in January of 2017. There were 780 families belong together marches or rallies. The level of commitment taken to organize almost twice as many rallies is huge. And Obviously, the Women's March was a huge amount of work, but mm-hmm. it was all the, almost twice as many people wanted to organize a Families Belong Together march. And it was a shorter term between the instigating policy and the organization of rallies. So the fact yes. that more people did it and did it faster. Yes, people started really talking about the Women's March on November 9th. This policy has been in effect, I think, about... A since month. May 7th. Since May 7th. Okay, so two months almost. Mm-hmm. 
So I think that's a really good sign for the country, for the left, for the possibility of getting these children reunited with their families. And it was very inspiring and positive for me to see all these people participating. So what was the crowd like? The crowd where I went, it was a lot of older white women and then a lot of families with small children. But there were also some people in between. There was the Nassau County Young Progressives Organization, which I I believe is new, I think, probably since maybe 2015, 2016. And there were... Like I said, organized labor, people that work with immigrants, people that work with refugees, a representative from a um, sanctuary union, which means they don't report to ICE. There was police there, Nassau County Police Department, but I think the people who organized the rally asked for protection just in case. There was one counter-protester. He told us to stop believing in fake news and that uh, child separation is not happening, so we can all go home because we're not protesting anything real. And... What my husband Adam said was that this is kind of evidence that he can't even support what's happening. He's in denial. He has to pretend it's not happening. But as I've seen these conversations go in these past weeks, people who support the Trump administration will say it's not happening. And if it is happening, it's not that bad. And if it is bad, then they deserved it. They're they're trying to have it all three ways. And it's ridiculous. Yeah. So let's maybe talk a little bit about what exactly is happening with family separation. So uh, May 7th was when it was announced by Jeff Sessions, officially, that they're going to enforce a zero tolerance policy at the border and what that means. And I'm getting this information from the Marshall Project, which is a criminal justice nonprofit. Basically, any immigrant crossing the border without legal documents would be prosecuted for a crime in federal court. And that's what zero tolerance means. So zero tolerance to any border crossing without documentation. So the difference is where these arrests are being processed. Previously, they had been prosecuted in immigration court, not federal criminal court. Some people were offered asylum or offered the opportunity to apply for asylum protection in the United States. Asylum seekers were detained for a short period and then released to travel to places where their asylum claims would be heard in immigration courts around the country. So that's a direct quote from this article. The next kind of thing this article goes into is, is it a crime to cross the border illegal? Yes. Basically, it's a federal misdemeanor. Smoking marijuana is also a federal misdemeanor. So on the level with that. Or speeding. Or speeding, correct. The separation of families is something that began on May 7th of this year as part of President Trump's policy that was announced by Jeff Sessions. This is a real thing that is really happening as a consequence of a specific enforcement policy by our current president and his administration. I think it's really useful to kind of clarify because I think You know, if there's a protester out there who's saying this isn't really happening, uh, there's a lot of people who who are arguing the Obama administration did the same thing. That is not true, and it's certainly not true at the scale. It's really important to kind of have your facts. A lot of people are talking about the Flores Agreement. The Flores Agreement does not require family separation at all. Full stop. The Flores Agreement was actually revised in 2015 in California to require authorities to prioritize family reunification and to release children uh, and their parents as fast as possible and generally in no more than three weeks. We did not do this to asylum seekers in the past and certainly not to every asylum seeker that comes across our border. So that being said, the Trump administration has a policy that is separating children and putting them into detention centers, every child that crosses the border without documentation. Without a visa. Uh, without a visa. It's yeah. not just that they don't have ID or something, it's that they don't have a visa. And I think that that's a very dishonest argument that certain people are making, which is, oh, my grandparents came here legally, my great-grandparents came here legally, why can't they? And that's because what they're talking about, late 1800s, early 1900s, especially if you were white, if you were coming here, you didn't need a visa. You didn't need to do any paperwork. You just had to show up and not have syphilis, and then you were in. It was ridiculous. You can't compare that to having to fill out paperwork, possibly in another language, 
there is a quota system on, you know, how many people we allow in from mm-hmm. certain countries, certain parts of the world, and then wait for years and years and years. And people are saying, oh, you know, wait your turn. Waiting online for a few hours or maybe a day at, at Ellis Island to see a doctor is not the same thing as waiting for years in a war-torn country where there's famine or where there's violence. I also believe historically asylum seekers have filed paperwork as they entered the country, not prior. Yes, I know people who have applied for asylum and I know people who have come here on a tourist visa and applied for asylum and been granted it. There is no rule against that. I think people need to do some research before they start yelling at everyone. Yeah, so hopefully now you can yell at people after knowing what's going on. (laughs) Something else I wanted to talk about just very quickly is in Queens, the victory of the candidate, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who ran in the uh, 14th Congressional District Democratic primary against Joe Crowley, Mm -hmm. who was an incumbent for many years. He was the chairman of the Queens Democratic Party. I don't know, he might still be chairman. You don't have to be an elected official to be chairman. So I think he still is the chairman of the Queens Democratic Party. She won, and it was very inspiring to me. I watched the whole thing, and at the time I thought, well, I guess when I saw that she had 8,000 individual donors and that about 20,000 people vote in that primary in any given year, I thought, well, she definitely is a shot. She's within striking distance. Maybe she'll get it, maybe she won't, and then she did. There's a lot of narratives going on about how this is a blow to establishment or centrist Democrats. In some ways it is, but in other ways, it's about people responding to a candidate who reaches out to them. I think in a lot of ways, this was Joe Crowley's race to lose. I think that if he had campaigned, if he had shown up to his debate, which he did not, they had a debate scheduled and he didn't show up. He sent a surrogate. Hmm. And I think that if he had campaigned a little bit and if he had shown up to his own debate, he might have won. Not that I'm saying that I'm not happy for Ocasio-Cortez. I am very happy for her. I'm very excited about her. But I think it is definitely a victory for her platform, which is, you know, democratic socialism. And I think that's a good thing. But there's a lot of nuance that's getting lost here in the in the national news and in the headlines, because people are either saying, oh my God, Queens is a socialist republic now and the Bronx is socialist. Or they're saying it's entirely about race, which it's not. There was an analysis done showing that Ocasio-Cortez won some white districts and Crowley was very competitive in, in some Latino districts. In some ways, yes, you know, there's definitely people who are Latino who want um, a representative who looks like them, but that wasn't the only reason that she won, and to say so is offensive. There's a lot of stuff going on um, with that race, and I think, like, just about any election, you can't put it down to only one factor. There were several factors there. One was definitely the fact that she was a a young Latina woman. One was definitely a fact that she was democratic socialist. Mm -hmm. And another factor was that Crowley didn't do anything there's a lot going on there and I I don't think it can be summed up quite succinctly in in maybe one tweet or something like that but it's very exciting it is really exciting and my happiness about this is unqualified I'm really really glad to see that someone fresh is going to be a representative in New York City or of New York City rather in federal government I'm very hopeful for November, seeing things like that. Yeah, the flip side of that in Manhattan was um, Carolyn Maloney held on to her seat uh, against Siraj Patel, who mm-hmm. was a young millennial South Asian man. Mm-hmm. And she went to her debate. It was closer than the, the Ocasio-Cortez versus Crowley election. But she she definitely campaigned. She saw what was coming and she campaigned. And I think a lesson... To millennials in politics, whether they be men or women or of any race or ethnicity, is that baby boomers are not going to just start retiring in droves. You're going to have to fight them for it. Yeah. And we saw that in both of these races. It, you have to fight, and sometimes they're going to fight back. Keep that in mind if you're running for office. And it was really interesting. Uh, Saraj Patel, his campaign was also significantly further left. I know a lot of people on Twitter were commenting on how he is one of the first candidates to run openly supporting FOSTA and protecting sex workers, 
right? So against FOSTA. Uh, against FOSTA. Thank you. Sorry about that. Uh, and to protect sex workers' rights uh, and really kind of listen to the community. But on the other hand, his campaign used Tinder to catfish people and then, you know, try to talk to them about the campaign when people were just ostensibly looking to get laid. So that was kind of weird. So just some insight into that uh, strategy, because uh, I showed this to my partner who works in tech. Their response was that this was really common when they were at South by Southwest, that uh, a lot of hashtag brands uh, reached out via Tinder and it was like universally hated so i can't imagine why that was uh taken up for a candidate i think regardless of what actual policies people put into place about uh domestic spying on citizens that have not committed crimes uh the invasiveness of a candidate in your hookup app i think it's pretty hard to get over (laughs) i can't imagine somebody thinking that would go well you know who did this? Gary Johnson. He did it. Well, he did it on Omegle, which some people do use as a hookup app, but it can be used for other things too. It's, it was like it's like chat roulette. Yeah, that's but it's what like I a second generation chat roulette. roulette. Yeah, and in 2012, if you were having a conversation on Omegle, and if anybody typed the word either Obama or Romney, an ad would pop up and say Obama. Romney, you deserve better. Vote for Gary Johnson. And I thought it was <laughs> hilarious and invasive at the same time. So uh, Siraj Patel was not the first person to do something this ridiculous, but I think he, he took it up another level because you can use Omegle for various purposes. There's only, you know, one reason people are on Tinder. That's debatable, actually. People use Tinder very strangely. I guess that's true. Yeah, but I think it's also important to mention that Siraj Patel did an incredible job in that race for mm-hmm. being, uh, I think, a first-time candidate for going against somebody who's huge in the party machine to have come that close I think is a real sign that people are kind of interested in fresh blood or a sign that the campaign really did its job Mm -hmm. uh, in advertising because I saw ads for Siraj Patel everywhere they did so many events and they did so much advertising but that also uh, full disclosure might be because I know somebody who worked on his campaign so (laughs) He also made some kind of inappropriate, offensive comments about how it's okay to have sex with teenagers. Do you think that hurt him in the in the campaign? I think that I'd like to think that it did, that people are enlightened and like, well, I'm not going to vote for him now. But Or do you think people just kind of brushed it off? I don't think that that was the reason, but uh, I would like that to have been the reason. Uh, I would certainly not be able to argue with somebody who uh, felt that morally they could not vote. For somebody, uh, there was also some, like, scandalous news story about how he messaged Michaela Maroney or, like, saw her in an airport and posted a selfie after, like, posting a ton about how in love with her she wa- he was and kind of creepy things when she was, like, 16 and they had a 10-year age difference. So mm-hmm. that put a damper on, on my appreciation for this candidate. <laughs> I think it dovetails poorly with being a pro-sex worker candidate in that like it kind of helps reinforce that kind of issue of people who are into sex workers are also sexually deviant or have kind of poor sexual boundaries i agree so the bad news this week is that supreme court justice kennedy is retiring well is that the bad news or the bad I news guess the is bad news is that trump is, is going to be appointed yeah the the Yes, that Trump will be nominating somebody to succeed him. And this possibly, almost certainly, portends the end of of Roe v. Wade and and other Supreme Court decisions that that protect vulnerable people. If I may be pedantic, the standard for abortion rights is not Roe. It's Casey, and I think it might even be Hellerstadt. What makes you say that? Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992 said that states could place restrictions on access to the medical procedures of abortion in the first or second trimester if it did not place an undue burden. That was the standard. And then Hellerstat was about trap laws in Texas, targeted regulation of abortion providers, Mm T-R-A-P, trap laws. And the Supreme Court said you, you couldn't have laws that pretended to be about safety but were actually about shutting down abortion clinics 
that's more the standard, which mm-hmm. is you can have some restrictions that have nothing to do with health or safety as long as you don't shut down clinics. I'm not sure. I'm not I'm not a legal expert. Maybe we should have asked a lawyer. If you know, tweet at us mm-hmm. or email us at femcoffeepod or feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. And we'd love to do an episode this, with you. Yeah. Whether the standard is Casey or Hellerstadt. I mean, it's easier to say overturning Roe, but I think they'll be overturning Casey. Mm-hmm. Because I think fewer people, unless you're, you know, a nerd about it or very involved in reproductive justice activism, you don't know about Planned Parenthood v. Casey. That was the case where they looked at things like, I think, parental consent and spousal consent. And I think they said that parental consent laws were okay, but spousal consent laws weren't. That was the, the creation of the undue burden standard, which meant so something like a 24-hour waiting period as people who work in reproductive justice and abortion access issues know that for someone who has a job or two jobs or three jobs and not affordable or reliable childcare, Mm -hmm. that can be an undue burden. But in the eyes of the law, it may not be because it seems like, oh, it's just waiting a day to make sure you're sure. But Right. And making two appointments for something that health insurance is not required to cover. Correct. And I think that that law went through last year that said that if a there's an extra tax on insurance policies that cover abortions. Because, of course, that's something that we would do now. So whether it's Roe or Casey or Hellerstadt, abortion access and abortion rights are in trouble in the United States with the retirement of Kennedy. I think people who point out that it never should have really been resting on one person's shoulders, I think they have a point. But that's the situation that we're in right now. I'm going to say what we've always said, which is give to your local abortion fund. There are other organizations that I didn't even know about until this week. In New York, there is an organization called Haven, which is where you could sign up if someone is traveling to New York to get an abortion because it's too difficult to get one in their state and they have nowhere to stay. And you would be open to letting that person stay with you. You can sign up and offer your home. Um, the way that it works is that you give them your name, your address, the neighborhood that you live in. You tell them when you're available and then you're on call. That doesn't necessarily mean that you will be called that day, but just that you're available that day if someone needs a place to stay that night. I've also just seen people discussing the possibility of starting new uh, Jane Collectives. Jane Collective was a service in Chicago, an underground network that helped women who wanted to get abortions. I've definitely seen a number of people start talking about that. So people who were not doctors providing abortions. There's a really good book called The Story of Jane, the Legendary Underground Feminist Abortion Service, and it's by Laura Kaplan. And this is a history of that organization. It's a really good book. Interesting times that we're considering non-doctor routes for medical procedures because they've become politicized. I think what happened with Jane was originally it was a way for people to get in contact with doctors who would do this anonymously. The women would be driven to an organization, sometimes it's very cloak and dagger, like blindfolded or in a van to not know where they were going. Mm. And they would either be under an aesthetic or, you know, have to keep their eyes closed or something like that so the doctor could remain anonymous because... It was usually a man who didn't want people to know that he was doing this illegally to lose his license. So they would set up these clinics. And then eventually what happened was the women who were the organizers convinced a different doctor to teach them how to perform abortions. So eventually they started doing it themselves. And this was before the abortion pill. This is when Mm -hmm. your only option was a surgical option. And uh, note that we want to have an episode about the different medical procedures that are used to perform abortions. But now we're talking about the Supreme Court. And yes. yes, everybody goes to Roe v. Wade because Kennedy was generally regarded as a, a swing justice, like a swing mm-hmm. vote in the court, mm-hmm. uh, in that occasionally he sided on what we would consider to be more conservative rulings, and sometimes he sided with more progressive rulings, but generally tended to support women's bodily autonomy and depoliticization of a medical procedure in abortion cases. Although right before leaving, he did really screw over the unions. So we can really just look at that. That's why when Elizabeth was saying that it's 
kind of a panic that we're losing Kennedy. It's not so much about Kennedy himself. It's so much that Trump might be able to appoint a new Supreme Court justice and historically somebody like Roberts or Alito, who was recently appointed by conservatives, they're young. And that means they're going to be on for a long time because it is a lifetime appointment. How does somebody become a Supreme Court judge? The Uh, president nominates a person to be on the Supreme Court. They go to the Senate Judiciary Committee to um, be interviewed. The Judiciary Committee takes a vote and makes a recommendation to the full Senate. And then there's a vote by the full Senate in there has to be two-thirds of senators approving the person for them them to be a Supreme Court justice. The most recently elected or nominated and approved Supreme Court justice, I think this is a saga that kind of informs some of the contentiousness around Kennedy stepping down uh, or retiring so near prior to midterm elections. Our most recently appointed justice was Justice Neil Gorsuch. And why that was contentious is Judge Gorsuch was put into former Justice Antonin Scalia's seat. And Antonin Scalia uh, didn't resign. He passed away in February of 2016. So 2016, you may remember, was under Obama's presidency. And so President Obama did not nominate Neil Gorsuch. So that happened nearly a full year before the inauguration of President Donald Trump. What Obama did was in March, one month later, uh, nominated Merrick Garland, a moderate, to Phil Scalia's seat. And hours after that announcement of uh, Garland's nomination, Mitch McConnell announced that basically that they would not vote until the new president was elected. So there's some history to pushing back the nomination and approval of a new Supreme Court justice. And there's a lot of recent anger around it from progressives. Uh, Even though Garland was not a strong progressive, I think Garland is widely considered a moderate. Maybe he would be a great replacement for... Kennedy, but um, he was kind of robbed of his chance to vote. And then once Gorsuch's nomination came in, there was a rule change put up that it, that he could be approved by simple majority. There were all kinds of fuckery around mm-hmm. the Supreme Court justice who was nominated under Obama, followed by who was nominated under Trump. That's why there's a lot of hubbub around this and people are feeling very cheated and expressing that. You know, the argument that they had to wait until the election was over was ridiculous because they were lying. There's an article, uh, PBS NewsHour, November 1st, 2016. Uh, If Clinton wins, more in GOP say no to full Supreme Court. And there were several Republican senators who said that if Hillary Clinton had won, they would still not have voted on Merrick Garland or anyone that she would have nominated. So the rules that the Republican Party is playing by now are you can only appoint a Supreme Court justice if you're a Republican president. That's the rule. That's how it seems. That is the rule that they're enforcing. And the Democrats did not filibuster Neil Gorsuch. So it seems like that they're abiding by that rule. This is kind of also, I think, related to a lot of current turmoil around the concept of civility for uh, White House Press Secretary Mm -hmm. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who was politely told that she would not be served at a restaurant quietly by people who were concerned about her regular lying to the American people, specifically in order to protect baby jails, just all the disgusting policy that's coming out of this White House. There are very few calls for civility when sitting president of the United States really vilely ridicules and appears to be threatening Maxine Waters. So private citizens don't apparently have the right to free speech. It also, people are pointing out the hypocrisy around if private citizens have a right not to create a cake 
for a gay wedding because somebody is gay, which I believe is an immutable characteristic and should be protected. But you are also not allowed to not provide service to someone whose choices you oppose. When I first heard about that ruling, I was like, I thought that the Civil Rights Act had been overturned or that the 14th Amendment had changed. That's not what happened. What the Supreme Court ruled was that they found that the state of Colorado had done some things that were inherently discriminatory to Christians. And they were not going after the baker because he was violating the civil rights of his gay customers, but they were going after the baker in an explicitly discriminatory way because he was a Christian. That's what the Supreme Court found. That's silly. That doesn't make any sense to me, but that was what the ACLU said that the court said. However, the court then just flip-flopped the next day when it upheld the travel ban because in the wedding cake case, they said that the government can't show malice towards any religion, but then it said it's okay to show malice towards Muslims and bar them from entering the country. So the Supreme Court is unclear and contradicting itself on what the government can and can't do based on someone's religion. I would not blame somebody for walking away from all of this thinking, yeah, we're pointing out a lot of logical hypocrisy and a lot, a lot of logical inconsistencies with their message. And what is the point of that? Because they're clearly, they don't care. They're obviously pushing their agenda and lying about it and no one's following the rules anymore. And I would not blame somebody for walking away from that. However, we've mentioned a number of times we are politically pedantic. So I do still think it's worth pointing out, even if it doesn't mean anything to point it out uh, to the people we're pointing it out to. I think it's really useful if you have conversations with your family about it to be aware of what, what the points are here. If you are being kind of talked down to about civility when you cry over baby jails, I feel like horrible also just as an aside because uh, baby jail used to be a jokey way that we referred to play pens in my family. I still um, do. Right? Yeah. Uh, and now it actually is like a literal thing that babies are being put into prison for being from mm -hmm. the wrong country uh, mm -hmm. without the right papers. And I heard something about federal courts requiring toddlers to appear unaccompanied in court. Like Yes, because they families. don't have their parents with them. That's disgusting. So it's them and an attorney. Do you think your toddler could explain to a court where he is from no. <laughs> and why no, he is where he it's, is? It's awful. It's awful. And children who are older than that can't even do it. I mean, there. I heard about this girl. I think she was five or six years old. She does not speak Spanish. She speaks an indigenous language in South or Central America. And there's no interpreter that speaks her language. So she's been away from her parents for weeks, and she's unable to communicate. That sounds like a nightmare. It is a nightmare. So there is a huge emotional level to this that I think, historically, on the internet, you could be called a Nazi for anything. But putting children in prison without their parents for misdemeanors that they can't really have knowingly committed or not committed, I think that's something that you could compare. I think the parallel is apt here. Uh, it's a particularly American version of it, but I, I do believe that this is some really disgusting level humanity shit. Yeah, last year in, uh, it was in August of, of 2017, I had a family member say to me, Elizabeth, when Trump was elected, you were so upset and you were you know, just devastated and, and grieving. And I had hoped that uh, Trump would not be as bad as his campaign. I had hoped that the dignity of the office would give him gravitas and he would get good advisors and be like a, a Michael Bloomberg type. But what this person said to me was, it is so much worse than anything I could have imagined. And I'm, I'm sorry, I downplayed your concerns, especially after the election, that I downplayed your grief for your country. I said, thank you for saying that. And I said, to be honest, I think things at this time in August of 2017, I think things are better than they were because uh, the country is not a uh, mushroom cloud nuclear bomb crater and neither is any other city on the planet. <laughs> However, with child internment, I think we are at the dystopia that I had been fearing and imagining. 
yeah. since the election night. You know what? Like, the adults should not be interned either. Like, no. this is what's so sad about all of this is this is not the process we have for immigration. And yes, we're focusing on the children because it is such a moral outrage. But adults should also not be interned for seeking asylum Correct. in a country that has historically been open to immigration. Are we ready to talk about sex bots? Yeah, so now we're going to switch topics uh, because it's just too depressing to keep talking about baby jails, literal baby jails. Right. So we did an episode about sex bots a couple of years ago. We did this episode in January of 2016. The world was a very different place. I think the main question that we addressed there was should... I guess straight women or or women who have sex with and partner with men be concerned that men will prefer sex bots to women. And we decided romantically, no, romantically, it's actually in in general as a Mm -hmm. partner. And we made lots of jokes and we are going to have more jokes, but we, we found that to be ridiculous. And Mm -hmm. we said, no, they won't because women in general don't prefer vibrators to actual people. They might prefer the stimulation. Correct. To yeah. Right. But 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 women stimulation. Who, women who are women aren't getting divorced because they had a vibrator or right. or if stopping anything, dating. Probably it has saved a number of marriages and relationships. <laughs> That's true. And so we didn't really see the difference between a vibrator or pornography and a sex bot, which could be used in ethical or unethical ways. But we said that it could have. Uh, therapeutic benefits for some people who find it problematic to be in relationships with other people. The conversation has changed a little bit in the past, I guess, two and a half years because some feminists, some radical feminists, some people on the left are weighing in on this debate. And instead of being kind of fear-mongering, hey, women, watch out, the sex bots are coming for you, they're saying that sex bots are or will make rape culture and patriarchy worse. And we're going to address that now today in part two of our sex bots discussion. I don't know how many parts there'll be, but right now it's parts one and two. Our ongoing discussion on sex bots. Our ongoing discussion (laughs) of sex bots. The first time that I really wanted to revisit this topic was last year. There was an article in the New Statesman called The Damage to Samantha the Sex Bot sex robot shows male aggression being normalized and there was a sex robot at uh, an electronics festival and it was severely damaged by the mostly men who were at this convention who were touching it and grabbing it and breaking it and some people said that this is evidence that sex bots you know, make men act out. I find this ridiculous because men already act out. Sexual violence exists with or without sex bots. I don't think that that's proof that the robots are creating the violence. We don't really have evidence for or against at this point. We don't have research on this. And a single instance may not be evidence either way. Uh, I think going back to kind of the one thing we had kind of uh, chatted about this earlier in the week about whether or not, hypothetically, it would be creepy for one of our partners, for a male partner, to have a sex bot doll or real mm-hmm. doll, so not a robot, but a lifelike doll that mm-hmm. they masturbated with. And so I think kind of what we had talked about was, is there something inherent in the doll or the, the robot? So I think the robots are responsive to behavior, that I think is a big distinction uh, in terms of masturbatory efficiency. So I think the the main thing is if a woman uses a vibrator to get off, we don't think of that vibrator or realistic dildo as something that they're inherently acting out on a male fantasy. Just kind of like speaking in really broad strokes that I'm not at all expert on. Uh, I'm really kind of just using my pop culture references for this, not my psychology mm-hmm. references for this, so I do kind of want to qualify that. But mm-hmm. the men appear to be more visually stimulated in masturbation, and that seems to go along with 
pornography use differences in men and women versus kind of maybe erotica literature or mental fantasies for women. The visual of a vibrator is generally like if you go to Babeland or any other sex shop, you're going to see a variety of shapes and sizes that very rarely are anatomical or appear to look like a human penis uh, or at all a realistic one. But I think that it might be a, a reasonable thing that for a man uh, or someone with a penis, having the visual of what looks like a woman to use as a masturbation aid might be a faster and more powerful way to orgasm, which I think is generally people are looking for kind of quick and sensational experiences in masturbating. With, they do have with male sex dolls also. They do, but we never talk about that. And I, I, I would also kind of suspect that their use is lower just because of the cost of mm-hmm. a sex doll uh, yep. and the quality and where financial power lies in our society. I, I right. don't want to make any broad conclusions about who would buy sex dolls if mm-hmm. we all had the same economic power to do so. I think part of the why this question came up was because I knew we were going to be talking about it. And I just so happened I'm backlogged because I have a tiny child on podcasts. <laughs> and I was listening to this episode. was I think it was from March. I think it was the March 13th, 2018 episode of the Savage Love podcast. And Dan Savage said that he would be creeped out if his husband wanted to use a sex robot or a real doll because he would think that that meant that his husband wanted to have sex with a person who couldn't talk back or express their own desires. And I think that he's making the mistake that a lot of people are making, which is that the person who's having sex with the doll inherently because they're having sex with the doll can't tell the difference between a doll and a real person. There are definitely some people who can't tell the difference between a doll and a real person, but that's not necessarily... So, to the correct. There might be some people just because they think it's cool that there's a doll they can have sex with that they're they're doing that, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be selfish or abusive or ignore the wishes or consent of their human partners. Yeah, or maybe they just get off on feeling legs and arms and seeing a face. Right. While yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think there's also this belief that masturbating with uh, a doll or with a robot is having sex and not masturbation. And I think that's an interesting classification because for me, I see it as a continuation of vibrators and dildos uh, and fleshlights. Male masturbatory aids do come in a variety of colors and shapes and sizes and anatomic appearance, but I see it as a continuation of a masturbation aid, not a step from sex with humans to sex with dolls. And so I think that perspective might really change how you view the inherent treatment of these objects. I agree 100%. And that's why I think that there's kind of a ridiculous conversation going on about how sex dolls or sex robots can't consent and that contributes to rape culture. But then why have we never had a conversation about if vibrators can consent? I think it's just as ridiculous of a question. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Sometimes I think like you're generalizing from like women are objectified, these robots are objectified, but these robots are objects. Correct. <laughs> women are humans. There is a difference. Mm-hmm. And if someone can't tell the difference, that's because they're a misogynist or they have been detrimentally influenced by patriarchy, not because the doll exists or because someone sold that doll. Yeah, and so there's also some kind of interesting events related to so you mentioned the the display model being destroyed it was a display model of a female coded sexual device that contributed to it or is it that display models tend to get destroyed um especially at expos i think that's really common any hands-on display model tends to be gleefully destroyed so there's kind of that question that still isn't answered for me definitively I think also I had heard that uh, one manufacturer of a sex robot that was made to look female, or how we understand female to look in our very gendered and patriarchal society, like a feminized robot that would stop being responsive if 
uh, the person using them to masturbate were violent or aggressive with them. But you could still have sex with the robot, so I think that's actually kind of worse, personally, uh, in Mm -hmm. terms of reinforcement. That, I think, is really fascinating. I think, again, that's a solution that's worse than a robot that was also into it with you, because that could be, like, a consent issue. Like, there are people who are into rough and aggressive sex consensually. uh, Exactly. And I think that actually tends to encourage non-consensual rough and aggressive sex, because... So many victims of sexual violence report kind of going limp or numb or having the experience of leaving their body and fully dissociating. So that kind of actually recreates a more realistic rape experience in my mind and actually seems really terrible. I think it's much better to have the robot respond as into it if you're shaping behavior. But are we shaping interpersonal behavior with humanoid or human-looking masturbatory aids. And that's really the question that we need to answer before we can really create policy or dive into this. I mean, that's the argument that both some feminists and some people who I would, you know, consider manosphere, misogynist or whatever, they're both saying the same thing, that sex bots can or will replace women. And I, I find that ridiculous because they're robots and not people. But going back to what you're saying about the whether or not the doll is responsive, one of the points that some feminists are saying is that there are some dolls that have different personalities. And one of the personalities that they keep talking about is one that the doll says no. But it's a doll. You can keep going anyway. Mm-hmm. And that that this should be, I guess, illegal or we should do something about it. It seems distasteful, but again it's like not my kink (laughs) right yeah well i mean right and you know i think that the question that if you think about this logically that you would ask was are you opposed to i guess consensual non-consent with human partners but they would say yes they would say that you know it's wrong to create pornography with actors that act these things out or for people to consensually role play these kinds of things And so they're not making a distinction between people who have distasteful fantasies versus people who have distasteful realities. People who have distasteful fantasies with other people in a consensual situation and people who um, have a distasteful fantasy that they act out on an, an inanimate object. In human kind of fantasy role play, Ideally, and maybe we could have Dr. Fraser come back on to talk about this, but ideally there's uh, some negotiation that happens before the kind of non-consensual consent role play goes on. So you, as the aggressor, would be aware of Mm -hmm. what the limitations are and, and would refuse to do anything that goes beyond those limitations. The argument can be made that it is potentially worse with a robot because you can kind of have that programmed in uh, that they say no, but they're a robot, so they're going to do whatever you'd like with no limitations. And so there's just less of that experience of the process that you, you get to have this experience after a negotiation. And so I could see that argument being made that there's a difference between having non-consensual sex with a robot that really simulates non-consensual sex versus having... Uh, consensual non-consent role play. Uh, well, you have to choose what personality your robot has, either before you buy it or maybe a switch on it or something. It's kind of an open question. And until that question's answered, I am wary of policing people's masturbation. Do we want to talk about there's an activist group called the Campaign Against Sex Robots? Right. So this is like a, a UK activist group that is trying mm-hmm. to get kind of legislation or policy put into place to restrict or actually to ban. Uh, So here we go. We propose to ban the production and sale of all sex dolls and sex robots in the UK with a move to campaign for a European ban. Regulation is not the answer in this domain, etc., etc. So they want a full-on ban in what they call sex dolls and sex robots. And I'm really curious how they define robot because will they be banning vibrators? Or the Sibian thrusting machines. Oh, yeah. And I think that it's important not not only to compare the newer sex dolls and sex robots that are being made and targeted for mainly, like, cisgender heterosexual men with the kind of, you know, vibrators and machines or whatever that 
that women use. But it's also interesting to think about it in the terms of the way other things get automated. Like right now there's a whole discussion on self-driving cars and people are talking about how this would be bad for certain industries, people who drive either cars or trucks for a living, how it might put them out of business and what the economic reality is for that. And that is a concern. However, no one's saying it's dehumanizing truck drivers or that it's or objectifying cars. or yeah, or objectifying truck drivers or making them second class citizens or something like that. It's simply a problem of capitalism if these people are unemployed, just like women being objectified is a problem of patriarchy, not necessarily of sex dolls or robots. So I'm going to push you on that because I okay. think that there's a difference between human interaction mm-hmm. and human relationships and sexuality mm-hmm. and driving, which is why I kind of made the joke about objectifying cars because cars mm-hmm. are already objects and right. tools. Although, I mean, I would say prior to vibrators, you know, a rolled up towel to hump has existed for as long as towels have existed. I think there is a, a major difference here in the when you're having an expression of your sexuality with another human being mm-hmm. versus masturbation, there is a human involved. And often we see that in heteronormative, cisnormative, male-female relationships, men tend to objectify women. Uh, there's male aggression towards women in these relationships. And I think that has existed long before sex robots and sex dolls as well to kind of place this causal reinforcement around it, I think it's kind of an extraordinary claim that requires extraordinary evidence that we do not have now. I can so I that. agree with you. I'm just kind of pushing back the, the on the car analogy. <laughs> no, I, I can see why. And I think it's because um, the, the campaign against sex robots people kind of get a few things mixed up. They're talking mm-hmm. about both the mistreatment of women in private consensual interpersonal relationships and also the mistreatment of sex workers in negotiated commercial relationships. They're saying that these sex dolls and robots will be bad for both. I don't know if I agree, but I guess that's more what like a the driver analogy is. Like it's a, you're paying a truck driver to do a job versus someone paying a sex worker for something and like the robot doesn't devalue the truck driver as a person. You know, how it affects the economics of the labor is a function of the lack of justice under capitalism. So I think we're really, our take home here and and add to it or correct anything that I'm getting Mm -hmm. awry is Mm -hmm. that the larger social structures about how we relate to one another are the issue here, not the objects. So in the same Mm -hmm. way as the issues of labor under capitalism are the real issues that truck drivers are facing, not Mm -hmm. the truck they're driving so much or the truck that's driving itself. So in the, Mm -hmm. in the same way, the issues of sexualized violence and the the issues of patriarchy are what's the issue in sex dolls, not the sex doll itself or the sex robot itself. I agree. Sex robots are at best like a Rorschach test or a cipher. The way people talk about them is what's important to understand our sexual culture and patriarchy. We're projecting onto them either the worst of what we think exists in terms of some feminists or what we think we would like the world to be in terms of some misogynist in the manosphere. Right. So again, sex dolls are not people. (laughs) Nope. They're not people. They cannot consent because they're not people. That's why the question doesn't make sense. This was something that people were talking about. Will sex bots fix incels or reduce incel violence? The question enrages me. So we're simultaneously taking incels at their word and rejecting incels at their word. Because on Mm -hmm. the one hand, incels are saying, if we got laid, we would not violently harass, stalk, and kill people, Mm -hmm. which they have done. But also on the other hand, People have recommended that we provide prostitutes or we pity fuck incels to prevent violence against us by them. And incels as a community have rejected this concept. And also women (laughs) have rejected this concept roundly. I don't have any desire to fuck someone to avoid them killing me. I'm pretty sure that's called rape. 
So I'm going to put those two things out there as why this question enrages me, uh, because sex is not what's causing the incel problem. Masturbation is not what is what is causing the incel problem. Having a realistic sex doll to masturbate into is not what's going to solve the incel problem. The incel issue is a cultural issue and potentially a mental health issue, but I don't know enough mm-hmm. about that to make that call as a psychologist. And I think people who say that it will solve the problem are not just not understanding the problem, but I think they're perpetuating the idea of equating women with objects. They're objectifying women because they're taking incels at their word that what they want is sex and they're proposing a sex doll. And in doing so, they're equating that doll with an actual person. And so by proposing the sex dolls as a solution for incels, they're objectifying women. Yeah, I think that hits the nail on the head. And that's also my issue with all of the arguments that have been made against sex dolls and bots so far is that people are really conflating women with dolls in all of these. It's it's actually, mm-hmm. I see this from my perspective as damning objectification of women, that people really can't tell the difference between having sex with a doll and having sex with a woman, uh, and that they're the same thing, and that people who use sex dolls can't tell the difference between sex with a woman and sex with a doll. The whole concept is enraging to me. Dolls are masturbation aids in my mind. I don't know the actual use case. I don't know. I haven't done any qualitative research on people who use sex dolls, which I would love to read if somebody does. Also, it's really hard to get people to talk about their fantasies and pull apart which parts are the fantasy and why. Like, that's something that we're historically very bad at as psychologists. Yes, that's exactly what was bothering me about what Dan Savage said, where he said, you know, if my husband wanted to have sex with the doll, I would assume that that means that he wants somebody who can't talk back. But how do you know that he either doesn't inherently like the idea of a doll or he's not pretending that the doll is like some celebrity crush or something like that? It might not necessarily be a violent or objectifying fantasy that's going on. Yeah. And if you flip it, uh, I know Jacqueline Friedman and... Tristan Taormino have mm-hmm. had a few conversations recorded for, what is it, Unscrewed Now? Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the name of the podcast, um, where they've talked about women's rape fantasies. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of women have rape fantasies, but very few women have a desire to be raped. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a really important distinction to make, that what you're thinking about while masturbating is potentially and probably not something you want to happen interpersonally with another mm-hmm. human being. Uh, and so I think a lot of the time there's just this conflation of fantasy with desire. Completely off topic, but maybe not. Sorry. I'm reading <laughs> this book right now. It's called Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire by Kurt Anderson. And he's saying that more than any other nationality, Americans have a problem telling the difference between fantasy and reality. So that just made me think of that. However, this case against sex robots group is based in the UK. So um, maybe not. We really didn't joke that much in the sex bot discussion. Uh, so sorry, everything's heavy today. But hopefully the sex bot discussion yeah. is a fun way to end this horrible episode on horrible things happening. Or good episode on horrible things happening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just think it's less funny to talk about rape culture than it is to talk about, like, watch out, ladies. Sex bots will replace you with your men. Like, So, yeah, it seems like the, the conservative argument is men will replace women with sex bots and the kind of leftist argument is that men will replace sex bots with women as targets of their aggression. Yeah, it's odd. And I think this kind of ties into a comment that we got a long time ago. One of our most popular episodes ever was about the 2016 primary, which I have no desire to litigate. (laughs) However, we got a question that we... We didn't answer, but I think it's kind of appropriate, which was, why didn't we talk about the kind of ridiculous and sexist things that Bernie Sanders wrote in the 70s? And I think the reason is it's like the same reason why we kind of dismiss the moral panic around sex bots, which is that it's irrelevant. Does that make sense to you, Karen? That makes sense. I feel like we should maybe go a little bit more into it, but just that fantasies and realities are different for different people sexuality is really idiosyncratic 
Uh-huh. And it's really unclear when people are talking about their sexuality, if they're talking about their sexual fantasy life or their sexual reality life. So open questions and to any researchers, especially human behavior researchers out there, I am anxiously awaiting your publication. And if you have pre-publication data that you want to talk about, please get in touch with me. I would die to read it. Yeah, come on our show. Yeah. Oh, also, yeah, if you get in touch with me, expect an invite. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks so much, everybody. Uh, Where can people find you on the internet? At Miss Cherry Pie on Twitter, P-I like the number pie. And you can find me at uh, Karen, U-H-K-A-R-E-N on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great, horrible summer. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and feminist coffee hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.